Okay, we're going to be in Romans 12 uh, once again today. We're going to be picking up really in the first two verses. And uh, we're continuing in a series that we've been in for a little while now. But uh, with that, I want to invite you to stand. And I'm only going to focus on these two verses. But um, one of the things that we've gotten in a rhythm in and been out of for the past few weeks is uh, standing for the reading of God's Word. This is the thing the early church used to do in honor and in recognition that we sit underneath the authority of God's Word. And so this is the word of the Lord spoken to you from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers and my sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You all can go ahead and take a seat. If you're a note taker, I've titled this one uh, Living Sacrifices. You're going to see this thing and you're going to hear this one repeated quite a bit. Honestly, I, uh, I did not plan this one out for, to fall on Mother's Day. As many of you know, my preaching calendar is about never accurate. And so um, this is how it plays out. I uh, didn't plan for it to fall on Mother's Day on a day like today. But quite honestly, church, like who better to exemplify what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, as Paul's going to call us to here in this text, than a faithful and loving mother, right? And, and so this is going to be the image that's going to play out here in this passage. I was rereading an ode to mom that was written a number of years back and participated in, in social media a little while ago. And uh, there's a number of people writing in thanksgivings to mom and things that they're, grat- they're grateful for. But uh, here's a few of the things that were shared. Mom, thank you for staying up late with me simply to talk when... I'm the one who likes to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Mom, thank you for sacrificing your evenings and staying with your family when you could have been out always with your friends. Mom, thank you for feeding me, even though I complained constantly about what you were feeding me. (laughs) Mom, thank you for giving up your quiet time when we were always yelling and screaming and trying to blow things up. Mom, thank you for letting us crawl in bed when we got scared at night. Mom, thank you for your sacrifice and for working multiple jobs, even when I complained that you weren't around as much as I wanted when later in life I realized it was because you were doing it alone. Mom, thank you for all the advice that I'm finally paying attention to after 20 years. Mom, thank you for always being there when I was sick and for changing up your whole day when the school called in the middle of the workday. Mom, thank you for bringing me joy and for doing all the things that you knew I liked to do even when I know you didn't like to do them. (laughs) Thank you for all of your time. Thank you for all of your hugs. Thank you for all the rides. Thank you for the advice. Thank you for the discipline, even though it wasn't well received in that moment. Mom, thank you for everything that you've sacrificed for me to be the person that I am today. Churches, there's not a lot of people that better embody what it is to be a living sacrifice than a mother. And it may not always get noticed in the moment. It may not always be appreciated. But moms get that there's just some people in your life that are worthy of your sacrifice. It's why you gave up nine months and a 12-hour labor, because you knew that the little child that was in your womb was worthy of the sacrifice. It's why you spend tens of thousands of dollars in order to make it happen. It's why you go through the long process of adoption or foster care or whatever it may be. It's the, it, it's the couples that awaited forever and ever and ever. Like You know that there are some people in your life that are worthy of the sacrifice. And so this is the question that's behind our text today. Like, is God 
worthy of being a living sacrifice? Is he worthy of that sacrifice in your life? Like this is what he calls us to after 12 chapters in Romans. We've been in this thing. I think we're in about week 26 of this series going through chapter after chapter and, and bit by bit by bit. But it's 11 chapters to this point in time of here's who God is and here's his worthiness. Here's the fullness of what he's done on your behalf in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the question that's going to be before us today, like is he worthy of a living sacrifice? Is he worthy of giving up your life for the praise and for the glory of his name? Is he worthy of stepping off the altar of your own life and letting him be lifted up in everything that you say and you do? Like, this is the argument of Romans. It's 11 chapters of here's the worthiness and the goodness of our God. Are we missing it? Or are we jumping straight to the application saying, Father, give me the best advice so that I can live my best life right now. It is 11 chapters of here's how beautiful, here's how glorious, here's how worthy our God is. This is the argument of Paul's letter to the Romans. He's simply sitting here saying, hey, like there's none who are righteous, not even one person on the planet. Like this is the fullness of the gospel. He says in chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of everything that's been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of this message. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he goes into what it actually is. And he says, hey, here's the fact of humanity. God loved humanity. We walked away from him to the point that there's none who are righteous, not even one person today. We've all sinned, chapter 3. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the righteousness of God is still available to you and to me through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. This is the beauty of the gospel, he says. This is the argument. Like if you and I have transferred our trust from where we used to be standing, this is what we've been talking about a number of weeks, like in as much as you and I have transferred our trust from standing on our own two feet of self-righteousness, of self-sufficiency, saying I am good enough to to, to be made right before God, in as much as we have transferred our trust from our own two feet, And we have transferred into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a substitute on our behalf. What the Bible is saying, what the gospel is saying right now here is that the righteousness of God can be yours in Jesus Christ. You have been justified, meaning that faith is counted to you as righteousness. This is what he's talking about when he says, therefore, my brothers and my sisters, in light of everything that we've been talking about for 11 chapters, in light of chapter 5, which says that you and I now have peace with God because of what God's done for us in Jesus Christ. In other words, because of what he's done, while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us because of all these things. Verse chapter 6 and chapter 7, like because in light of the fact that you and I were raised to walk in newness of life with him, and that sin does not have dominion over us anymore because we're not under the law anymore, but because we're under grace. In light of that reality, in light of the fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has now set you free in Christ Jesus our Lord, in light of the fact that he is a God, who is able to work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. In light of the fact that there's nothing you can do at the end of chapter 8 that can separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. In light of the fact that from him are all things, to him are all things, through him are all things. In light of those realities, in light of the realities of what he's done personally in your life, that day that you realize the all-sufficient beauty of God's grace on your behalf, Uh, The the moment that you realize, hey, that God's grace applies in my life, and that thing that I've carried so much shame in the entirety of my life, that period of life in the young adult years, in those college years, that I've held onto, that God's grace was sufficient in the moment of that time, in light of all of these realities and who God is and what he's done on your behalf, he says, therefore, church, present your bodies 
as a living and holy sacrifice because that is your spiritual act of worship. In fact, the word that he uses right there when he says spiritual worship is a word that literally means this is your logical, irrational act of worship. In other words, like this is the only thing that makes sense to do in light of all the God's done for you. Church, do we understand the worthiness of our God? This is the question that's here in the text. This is where he's leading us to right here. Have we missed the beauty, the fullness of the first 11 chapters of all of what God is and what he's done on our behalf? And he says, therefore, in light of all of these realities, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice unto him. I want us to think for a moment of just a little bit about what he's talking about right here. Because what he's saying for us right here, every bit of this is contradictory to how do we think about these things today especially in our culture today. He's talking about two things here, which are really one and, a, one and the same thing. But the first thing he says is offer your body as a living sacrifice, meaning your literal physical body, your physical being, who you are, how you use your energy, how you think, what you do, the, the, the energy that you expend. Right? Every single day, over and over and over again, uh, you offer yourself time and again because like, that's the nature of a living sacrifice. The nature of a living sacrifice is it's not like a traditional sacrifice that's dead on an altar and unmoving. A living sacrifice by nature is doing whatever it can to get off that altar. And so every single day it needs to be sacrificed over and over. This is kind of what he's saying. Like He's saying, offer your body continuously as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to him, meaning... Because God has made you holy and acceptable to him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, like this is one of the benefits we talked about in the first 11 chapters of Romans is that even though you and I don't feel that way, we are not physically that way, God has gifted us his righteousness. He's gifted you his holiness. And so he says, in light of what God has done for you, offer your body back to him in the exact same way. He continues in a very similar way, and he simply says, don't be conformed to the world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, what he's saying, point one and point two, is offer up everything as a sacrifice to him. All of your body, all of your physicality, all of your strength, all of your energy, all of who you are, your space, the things that you say, the things that you do, the way that you think, your comfort with the world. You're longing to be conformed to the ways of the world. Offer it all over to him. This is what he's saying. Everything that you would naturally value and embody emotionally, offer it over to the Lord as a daily sacrifice of worship to him. I love the way Tony Evans talks about this. He says, uh, it's the difference between what a chicken and a pig bring to the eggs and bacon breakfast, right? He says, it's, uh, the chicken made a contribution. The pig gave up everything that he had for that breakfast, right? And, and we're so grateful because we get bacon and sausage, which is the greatest thing uh, in the world. But church, this shouldn't be surprising because this is exactly what Jesus says is required to be a follower of his. And you remember this speech. He gives it a number of times in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 14. He's speaking to the crowds, a bunch of people that are being interested in who he is. And they're kind of saying, hey, maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is the one that was prophesied about and promised that we've been looking forward to all these days. And it feels like Jesus is about to try to thin out the crowd a little bit. But he says this. He says, you cannot be my disciple unless you die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your your cross daily, and you follow me. I mean, it's like he's trying to thin out the crowd. But he says, like, this is what it's required if you're going to follow me. This is what's required to be a disciple of mine. And so I want to break this down a little bit because like none of this fits with how we culturally think today. I mean, who in the right mind is going to sit there and say, yeah, offer my body as a living sacrifice? Are you kidding me? Like who in the world are you to tell me what's holy or what's right and what's wrong? 
Like, who in the world are you to do that? Like, Jesus is talking about, like, dying to yourself and denying yourself. Like, why in the world would I ever want to deny myself? Aren't I supposed to find myself today? Like, aren't I supposed to, like, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Be true to myself, find myself, discover my own sense of truth? I mean, if I follow the, the, the wisdom and advice of Instagram and social media constantly, like, then all I got to do to be happy today is discover myself and be true to who I really am, right? However, I define who I really am. Church, like everything that he's talking about here, here, it flies in the face of what we value today. I mean, 75% of the images shared on Snapchat are selfies. Like, we, we, we are a self-obsessed culture. We finally have these platforms that we've always dreamed of having where I be, get to become the center of the universe. Didn't we dream about that as kids? I want to be rich and famous. I want to be number one. I want the whole world to revere me. We finally have these platforms in some different ways. Like, there's nearly 100 million selfies posted online every single day. 100 million. Like there's over a 1,000 selfies posted to Instagram every 10 seconds. I love this one. I shared this one before. In 2015, there's more people that died from taking selfies than died from shark attacks. Right? And then, like, literally, we're killing ourselves being so obsessed with ourselves. Meanwhile, this is exactly the thing that Paul is saying, no, 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 he's worthy of laying down your life. He is worthy of this kind of sacrifice, denying yourself, giving yourself up every single day. Church, this is what we've called the God of self. We've talked about this a number of times around here. Like, this is what secular sociologists call expressive individualism. We've talked about that many, many times around here, but we have to talk about this. We have to know this in order to identify some of the messages out there that we have a way of coming in and then conforming us to their image instead of being transformed in the process. We have to understand what's going on here today. But this is what secular sociologists call the God of today. They're sitting there calling this the most powerful and the most popular and the most persuasive God in America today. Yeah, I want to read you a little bit snippet. I've read this before, but this is actually coming from an academic article that's describing the philosophical framework around expressive individualism and what actually drives our ethics today. The greatest good of individualism is self-actualization, where one is able to fully express and act upon his or her desires and highest aspirations, whatever they might be. The assumption grounding this belief is that all of your desires and all of your inclinations are built into you as a person. And together, they all constitute your personal identity. So for any social norms or moral traditions, i.e. religion or anything like that, to tell you that your aspirations or your desires ought not to be pursued, it's the same as telling you that you should not be yourself. And so the article continues and says, like, the central assumption of individualism. By the way, like, this is not coming from a Christian perspective. This is coming uh, from secular social uh, sociologists here that are saying this, the central assumption of individualism is what, what's good for you may be different from what's good for other people, moral relativism. And the, the individual alone is best equipped to make decisions about his or her own life. Therefore, any sort of social or moral framework that does not account for and celebrate an individual's unique desires, inclinations, or aspirations is thus a form of social tyranny. Church, this is the God of self that gets played out today. When self is elevated, we become our highest gods. We define everything ourselves. What I think is true becomes true. Like This is the God of self, and it's exactly what Paul's saying has to be sacrificed before the Lord every single day, day by day by day. Specifically, he's going to say, don't be conformed to the world. Right? He's going to say, don't be conformed to the world. In other words, like don't be conformed to the thinking of the world. 
Don't be conformed to the ways of the world. Don't be conformed to the values of the world. Don't be conformed to the greed of the world. Don't be, con- don't be conformed to the me first attitudes of the world. Don't be conformed to the pride and the narcissism of the world. Don't be conformed to the sexual immorality of the world. Don't be conformed to cancel culture of the world when he's given you a gospel of grace whereby you and I have a brand new life and are no longer defined by the things of our past. Like, don't be conformed to the anger and the violence of the world. Don't be conformed to the destructive nature of the world. Don't be conformed to the relativity of all things in the world. Don't be conformed to any of these things. Instead, he says, be what? Transformed. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world, but he says, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind day by day by day. Not by hoping that culture is always going to affirm what I believe. Not by hoping that I'm always going to be in, a, in some sort of an abstract majority and never in the minority. Not by hoping that my faith is never going to be challenged outside these walls or anything like that. It is through the renewal of my mind. It is by sacrificing my time, laying down my life every single day, being so saturated in the truth of God's word that when I hear something contradictory out there, number one, like number one, I'm not shocked by it because Jesus already told me that this was going to happen. He said that in this world, you should expect troubles and afflictions and difficulties of many kinds. And so, like, I'm not shocked by the fact that there's contradictions out there in the world. I'm also not expecting people who may not be followers of Jesus Christ to actually follow Christ. I'm not shocked by a number of different things over there. I'm not shocked that there's differences in the world in which we live. But, But by sacrificing my time, being so saturated in the truth of God's word, like, what this means is that I already know up from down. I know what's good and pleasing to God, as Paul says here in this text. And so when I hear something out there, I'm able to take it and bring it to the truth of God's word. I'm able to test it, what Paul says right here, and I'm able to discern, God, what is of you and what is not of you in this moment. But church, like, this is the key. It's right here in the mind. He says the renewal of your mind. This is the key to transformation. It's right here in the renewal of your mind day by day by day. I'm sacrificing my time. I'm laying it down. I'm being fed and renewed in my mind day after day after day. And what I want to be really, really clear about this, what I'm not saying is that there is never a time to challenge the ethics of culture because there absolutely is out there. But I do wonder if some of our fear And some of our vitriol is because we are counting on culture to do the hard work of discipleship for us. Paul says the way of transformation, it's here. It's in God's word. It's through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's given you everything you need to be transformed. The first fight is not out there. It's in here, in the renewing of your mind. What he's saying, the way to be transformed personally is in God's word through the renewal of your mind day by day, laying down my time, laying down my mind, laying down my strength, laying down this portion of every single day saying, Father, come and feed me. Renew my mind day by day that I can know you, that I can know your ways, that I can be like you in a number of different ways, love like you, think like you, value like you, see humanity like you do, serve like you do in all these different ways. He's saying first and foremost, renewal and transformation takes place right here. The way to transform your kids is through the renewal of your mind, not the control of everything out there first and foremost. The way of transformation, the hope that you have for your children is that they're going to get a hold of God's word and that God through his gospel, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, is going to do a work in them whereby he, under, whereby he transforms our mind. The way that culture is transformed is through the renewing of our minds and God doing something in and through us that you can never accomplish in and of our own strength. 
Priscilla Shire talks about this a number a number of times in the way that she was um, in the way that she was raised. This is Tony Evans' uh, daughter, hero of the faith, pastor in South Dallas. But she talks about growing up in a home where her parents deeply loved the Word of God. Uh, they were deeply committed to seeing their minds transformed day by day, renewed day by day. But she talks about how weekly there would be these times where the family would come together. And uh, Tony would come and get the kids together, and again, he would do what they would typically do. He'd just hand out the Bible and give them a passage, and one of the kids would read it out loud, and they'd just simply take this time, and they would talk about it. And we've talked about a number of you guys that you kind of have these same rhythms around the home, maybe around the dinner table. You'll come, and you'll open it up, and you'll just ask questions about the Word of God. But she said one of the questions that he would always ask over and over again is, uh, how do you see this being contradicted in the world in which you live? But she goes, you know, he was always curious. Like, how do you see God's word playing out? Even as an elementary school kid, uh, how do you see this being contradicted and being tested in the world that's there? He said, I wanted to be a part of what's going on in the world. I I wanted to help them know how to renew their mind and be able to train them in the things of God. And so she just talks about it. What what an edifying time for me. I'll never forget when it was. This is a rhythm in my own home growing up. And one of the things that I most appreciated about my own mom, deeply committed to the truth of God's word, but... Grew up in the church and uh, I remember hearing the stories of Genesis. For me in third grade, the conversations at that time had to deal with essentially naturalistic evolution, which was um, being taught in schools and, right, it still is and that's kind of normative now. But uh, back then, this is the big question that I had at that time. Like I remember re- growing up in Sunday school, reading Genesis, that God speaks and that he creates. And of course, there's questions about time and all these kinds of things, but, but that God was always there at the beginning speaking and bringing things into existence. And so I remember coming into third grade and reading about the origins of man and coming in and being like, wait a second, there's nothing mentioned here about God. This doesn't really seem to, to jive with what I thought I understood. And I remember coming home and having this conversation with mom that day. And I remember coming home and just saying, hey, mom, like, what's up with this? Because it doesn't seem like this doesn't seem to, 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 to um, this isn't really in line with what I've been hearing in Genesis and what you've been teaching me from her. I remember this conversation. We sat there and we come in and she goes, okay, let, we need to have a conversation. And she just looks at me and she says, Aaron, you need to understand that for the rest of your days, you're not going to be living in a world where everyone believes what you believe. As a third grader. Just coming and saying, hey, you need to understand, you're not going to be living in a world where everyone believes the exact same things that you do about God. You're just not going to have that. Not everybody believes the exact same things. And guess what the Bible tells us about that? Whether you agree or you disagree, whether you're on the same team, you're not on the same team, whatever it may be, you love people equally. You go out there, you serve them, you love them. The point of difference is not a point of contention that's, divis- that's divisive or anything like that. He goes, she, she sat me and she sat there and said, hey, this is what we do. We love people in, in disagreement or in agreement. But then she says, hey, you need to understand that confusion out there, it does not need to be your own. You need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's word is true. It is trustworthy. And I'll never forget coming back to this conversation. She came back and went back to Genesis. And she starts talking to me all about Genesis as a third grader. And it is way over my head, y'all. Like, I'm not getting any of this thing. But she comes back and starts coming and saying, look, look, here's what the word of God says. God is all powerful. God is all sufficient. And he speaks and he brings things into being. And I'll never forget that conversation because I sat there and was like, okay, this is what's going on. She was deeply committed to the renewing of my mind. And and, and church, I'm telling you here, like I promise you, like in that moment, her sacrifices seemed probably to her like it made no difference whatsoever, but there are no small sacrifices in the hands of God. This is just how it plays out. It just seems like a small, insignificant conversation. It seems like a small, insignificant daily sacrifice over to the Lord, but there are no small sacrifices in the hands of God. 
I told you about a conversation we had with Caleb a couple years back where this played out in kindergarten, right? And the conversations that are coming out today, and there was a kid wrestling with, with identity and, and who they were and all these things. And we remember sitting there in a, uh, in a, in a drive through at Chick-fil-A, and he tells me about this conversation that's taking place. And we pull over right there on the sidewalk, and we have the exact same conversation that mom had with me back in third grade. Son, you need to understand, we're living in a world not everyone is going to understand and believe the exact same things that you believe. But you need to understand that God's word is true and what he says about you is true. When he made you in his image, he has given you inherent dignity, value, and honor. When he made you on these different kinds of ways, we got into this incredible conversation and again, way over his head. But what he's saying right here, church, is that transformation takes place through the renewal of our minds. Transformation takes place through the renewal of our mind. Church, like none of the conversations we're having today are brand new. None of these conversations are brand new. Like there's a way that seems right to man, the word of God says, but its end leads to death. Meanwhile, what he's saying right here is there is a way that begins with a death that ends up leading to life. Like everything about what Jesus is talking about, everything that the epistles are talking about, Paul's talking about right here is like it is completely upside down compared to the way that we live our lives. Like there's a way that begins with a death that ends up leading to life. I mean, listen to the way Paul talks about himself and his own sense of identity in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anyone has, put, has a reason to put confidence in myself, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, I was absolutely faultless. But here's how he thinks about all of those qualifications. Here's what he says. Whatever was gained to me, in other words, like, and whatever the world saw valuable in me, whatever I had to offer the world, in other words, whatever the things were that they saw in me, which were awesome, which were great, which were elevated and esteemed, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. Like church, like where in the world is the self-actualization and how Paul sees, him, Paul sees himself right here? Like, where in the world is the me-centered self-discovery? He doesn't, it's not there, church. And it's not like he's insecure about who he is. Like, Paul knows who he is. He's walking in confidence every single day. But he's allowing the renewal of his mind coming through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what God has says is true to come and to be his rock that he stands on every single day. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he's going to say, I have been crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live my life, but it's Christ who lives in me. This life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Church, like this is how a worshiper and a Christ follower thinks. All of my life, God, it's yours. There's nothing off the table. All of my strength, all of my body, all of my mind, all of my thoughts, all of my values, God, where I go each day, what you call me to do, how I see truth, God, everything that you've called me to do, it's all yours. All of my politics, they're yours. All of my purposes and what I give my life to, it's all yours. All of my time, all of my talents, all of my treasures, God, all of it is yours. You're the one who first loved me. The first 11 chapters are true. You're the one who came after me while I was still lost and dead in my sins. God, you still loved me. You came after me. You're the almighty, all-powerful king of all creation. You're the one who makes all things work together for good. Church, how in the world can we not all give it back to him? If we've been paying attention for 11 chapters and we know who he is and we know what he's done for us, how can we not give it all back to him? Like, this is the question of the text. Is he worthy of your sacrifice? After 11 chapters, have we been paying attention or have we just been kind of skipping to the end saying, okay, I need you to bullet point this for me so that I can live my best life right now? 
No, 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 no. What he's saying is he is your best life. He is worthy of it all. And this is the thing that's going to drive, uh, this is the thing that's going to drive the newness of life. Is he worthy of your sacrifice? In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is going to say, unless you hate your father and your mother, your wife and your children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. And granted, like, don't take that too far because he's, like, he's not talking about a literal hatred for your family that would contradict literally everything else he's always said throughout the Gospels right here. But what he's saying here is that of all the relationships you have in this world, I am the priority. I am the priority. If you're offering it up to him, if he's the one that's being worshipped, then I am the priority in the entire thing. Church, like, is he worthy of your sacrifice? Is he worthy of laying it all down, following him? Stepping off of the throne of my life and gladly surrendering to him in all these things. Church, take a minute and think about what he's saying right here. Coming up on 19 years with Kat now. Like there's literally not one person on this planet I would rather spend time with than her. I've got brothers and sisters and a mom and a dad that I still love and enjoy. And, and, and I like holidays with them, right? I've got an eight-year-old I pretty much use for every single sermon illustration there is, right? And what Jesus is saying here is that he is more worthy than the people that you most love in your life. That if there's ever a decision between following your family or following him, which they're not in contradiction with each other most of the time, what he's saying right here is that 10 times out of 10, he wins. He wins. I'm thinking of my friends who were serving in Afghanistan, sent an email out a little while ago to us talking about this tension that they had between loving their family, loving Jesus, following him. But they sent out this email a little while ago and said, please pray for us. We are getting an intense amount of pressure from our families to come home and to stop what we know God has called us to do. And you, you, you know the love of a mother for their son or for their daughter. Like, you know the love of a father for the kids. You know the love that you have for your own family or for that best friend or for that grandma or grandma who, grandpa who raised you or whatever it may be. Like, you know how the strong that love is. And what they're wrestling with in this time is that God is more than worthy of the entirety of my life and that he's called me to go serve in this place that they don't want me to go. What in the world am I supposed to do except still follow him? Church, is he worthy of your sacrifice? Whatever that may be that he's calling you to every single day. I'm thinking of Dr. Eleanor Chestnut, hero of the faith, late Presbyterian missionary that lived in the late 1800s, chose to stay single her entire life because motherhood, fatherhood is not our end goal. Serving Jesus, honoring him is the end goal, the thing that we follow more than anything else. But she talks about, Ruth Tucker actually, actually writes about her story in her book, but she talks about it in the late 1800s as a young single woman who came out of medical school. She had offers by wealthy, eligible bachelors to be married and to be taken care of for the rest of her life. And she says she wrestled with this because I didn't love those people, number one, but more importantly, like I love the Lord Jesus and I felt this strong call to go into medical missions over in China at a war-torn, really, really difficult, hostile to the gospel area of China. And so she says, that's what I chose to do. And Ruth Tucker writes about her story. It's a fascinating story, but she says in 1893, she goes over to China. She builds a hospital using her own money to buy bricks and mortar. She didn't raise it through friends. She didn't have like a GoFundMe account or anything like that. This young single woman sold out to the strength of the go for the strength of the gospel says, all of my money that I've saved, I'm going to build this brick and mortar hospital at this time. Ruth writes on and she says, the need for her services was so great that she performed surgery in her bathroom until the building was completed. One operation involved the amputation of a common laborer's leg 
Complications arose and skin grafts were needed. A few days later, another doctor asked Chestnut, why are you limping? Oh, it's nothing, was her terse reply. Finally, a nurse revealed that the skin graft for the patient, a coolie, it came from Dr. Chestnut's own leg, taken with only a local anesthetic. Who does that? They go back and they're like, what are you doing? They're like, what are you doing? Like, why, would you, why would you cut off some skin from your leg to give it to this person over here? And she goes, what do you mean what am I doing? I'm saving her life so that she has another opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like she's sitting here just going like, what do you mean what I'm doing? Like, is he king or is he not? Like, this is what it means for me in that moment to sacrifice my life for the praise and for the glory of his name. Like, what do you mean what I'm doing? He is on the throne of my life. It's all about his praise and it's all about his glory. The first 11 chapters of Romans are all true. He really did give his life that I could be saved, that I could be redeemed, that grace would be coming to me, that I could be cleansed, that I could be forgiven, that I could be given the brand new, a brand new life. What do you mean, what am I doing? He's more than worthy of it all. Like I'm thinking of the wife who came to faith after marriage and she chose to keep following Jesus and raising her kids to do the exact same thing despite the fact that her husband made fun of her for 22 years for being a Christ follower in the home. I'm reading my Bible and all the jokes and all the making fun of and stuff, 22 years. I'm taking my kids to the church week after week after week and the jokes keep piling in 22 years before he pays attention and he says, you know what, I believe that this God that you persisted with for so long is true and he's, re and he's real. After 22 years of watching the faithfulness of his wife and these sacrifices that are typically overlooked and unseen by other people. He's sitting there going, I see it, and I believe it. Thinking of the mom who talked about never being seen and the day that she realized that, you know what, I'm actually invisible, she says. Nicole Johnson is an author and a speaker, and she talks about this realization. And that day when uh, she realized, and she jokes about it, of course, in her speech and her writing about it, but she goes, like, I realized that the reason all these things were kind of falling to the wayside is because I actually am invisible. And she talks about the day that she realized this. She's walking with her five-year-old across the crosswalk in front of the elementary school. And the crossing guard looks at the little boy and says, hey there, young man, who do you have with you today? And her son, holding her hand, looks up and says, oh, nobody. <laughs> and she's going, nobody? I'm sorry, like nine months in here and like all the sacrifice, all this, like I'm a nobody now? And she's kind of thinking about that, and she goes about her day, and she's not really taking it too personally, except to realize, you know what, maybe I am a nobody. And she goes, from then on, I started, like, thinking about this, and a lot more of my life started to make sense. She goes, I come home, and, and like, literally everybody's watching TV in the living room, and, so, and, and, and I ask him, and I said, hey, can you please turn down the TV? And literally no one responds whatsoever. And she's joking about this lightheartedly and stuff, but she's kind of going, yeah, I got asked for a favor here, and it's never heard or seen. No one comes back from, from school in the day and asks me about my day. No one cares about that. They see, they, they, they wonder if I've got laundry done on time, food on the table, and all the different sacrifices that I make all the time. And that's the day that I realized I'm actually invisible. And she's joking about it in some respect, but she goes, it took many, many years to realize that all the sacrifices that I'd made the entirety of my life, they may not have been seen by people around me, but God had already always seen them. And she writes about it in this book, and she tells a story about the day that it all began to make sense, but she was coming from one of these incredibly busy, rambunctious days when everybody's going crazy, doing their own thing. One of her best friends is coming home from Europe, 
They're having a celebration of her returning from home, and they go to a friend's house, and she goes, I barely had enough time to throw my hair up in a bun, put the sweatshirt on, and I go over to my friend's house, and they're all dolled up and looking fresh and everything else. And, and she goes, I never felt smaller. I never felt more insignificant at that point in my life. And she comes in, and her friend had brought her a book. It's a giant book that's a coffee table book on the beautiful cathedrals there in Europe. And she hands her this book, and she's looking at it, and she's sitting there going, like, why in the world did you get me a book about cathedrals? And she opens up the book, and she simply reads what her friend had written on the inside of this book, and it says, with admiration for the greatness of what you are building when no one else sees. She starts thinking about these cathedrals, and she starts to realize in that moment that in the middle of every single sacrifice that she made, even though it was ignored and largely unseen, or it felt that way at that moment, that it was never unseen by God, that every single sacrifice done in worship of God was always seen by him. Over the weeks to come, she took the book and started reading about the cathedrals, and she's like, this is an interesting thing. And she goes, I started learning all about cathedrals, and the fascinating thing about all these different cathedrals that are all throughout Europe, the most beautiful ones in the world. I started reading them, and picture after picture after picture, at the bottom of the picture, it simply said, Builder Unknown. Took hundreds of years to build these cathedrals. People began with a vision, and they labored day after day after day. And many of them didn't get to finish the work that they begun, and they would labor for years and years and years and never get the credit for anything that they built. She goes on and she tells a story of how one builder and how one of the, uh, not really the architect, but one of the workers on one of these cathedrals got so caught up in his work that in one of the cathedrals out there, there is a beautiful, ornate bird that took nearly four months to hand sculpt, sculpt, and it's located under this lip of the cathedral, out of view from what anybody could possibly see. You have to go out of the way to look underneath this lip of this cathedral, and you're going to find this beautifully handcrafted little bird. And finally, somebody came to that builder that one day and was like, why in the world are you spending so much time on a bird that nobody is going to see? And she writes about it. This guy writes about it in the book, and he says, simply because God always sees. God always sees. And she says, this is when I realized that every little sacrifice Every little thing that was done in worship and appreciation for him, it's always seen by the king of kings. And so she says, at times my invisibility, it's felt like an infliction to me. But it's not a disease that's taking my life. It's the antidote to my pride and, to the, cure, and the cure to the disease of self-centeredness. I don't need my kids telling their friends, you won't believe what my mom does. Like, I don't need them doing that. Like, you, I, don't, I don't need my kids telling their friends, like, you won't believe like, the way that she does this or the way that she does this. Even if I do all those things, I don't want them talking about it, she says. I want them to come home, and I want them to tell their friends, you'll love being in my mom's home. It's okay that they don't see my sacrifices. We don't work for them. We work for him. We sacrifice for him. They may never see, and they won't see if we're doing it right. Not if we do it well. May we pray that our work stands as a monument to an even greater God. Church, may it be the case that your sacrifices all build up as a monument to an even greater God, that we would understand the beauty and the glory of the first 11 chapters of what Paul has been pouring his whole heart and soul into, that we would see the beauty and the glory of God, that we would see his worthiness, 
That we would see the God that while we were still lost and dead on our sins, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come after us, that we may be redeemed, brought into right relationship with him, that he's the one who washed and he's the one who cleansed, he's the one who's worthy above all things, that we would gladly lay out our lives as a living sacrifice to him. And that you would know that every single sacrifice you make as an offering of worship to him is always seen and always received by him. Father, we do love you, God. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We give you, we give you honor. We give you worship. You're the one who spoke everything into being. Father, you're the one who holds the world in the palm of your hand. You're the one who dispenses grace and mercy upon mercy, upon mercy. Father, we worship you, God. We love you. For the person that's coming in today that's felt like every single sacrifice they've ever made is not seen or valued, Father, I pray that they would see you are the God who receives their sacrifice of worship and sees them. Father, I pray that we'd understand that there is no small sacrifice in the hand of God, that you take every little tiny thing that's done in worship of you, God, you multiply it, you work all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes, God. You sovereignly bring these things about. God, may we find rest in your presence today. For the person that needs a bigger vision of you, Father, I pray that that's exactly what you would do. God, that you would bring to life the first 11 chapters of this letter all about you, God. May you be magnified in our thoughts, in our feelings, and may we know the God who is more than worthy of it all. Father, we love you. God, we do praise you this day. We thank you for our moms, everybody that we're celebrating today. We give you praise and worship in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.